Well, if you've got your Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, you know, there are certain uh, chapters throughout the Bible that are known for a particular emphasis. Um, for example, Hebrews chapter 11 is that great hall of faith chapter in the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter in the Bible. Isaiah 53 is that great uh, servant chapter of the Bible, the suffering servant. It's such a picture of what Christ came to do uh, on the cross. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 in its entire 58 verses could very well be the resurrection chapter of the Bible because more so than any other chapter, uh, it presents the most detailed teaching on the subject of the resurrection. Now, not only is this chapter about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but this chapter also, and in fact, most of the chapter, actually it gives us a theology of the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection. Uh, and because Jesus is alive, because he is the resurrected king, resurrection is also true for those who are in Jesus Christ. And so it very much is true that if you are in Jesus Christ, there is no grave that's going to keep your body down. Because he rose, we too shall also rise. You know, each of the world's religions have something to say about what comes next. Uh, you've got Eastern religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, they see life as being cyclical. And so they hold to this idea of reincarnation. And then you hear this idea of karma. And karma means that a person's actions in this life determines uh, the life that they experience when that person is reincarnated. If you're good, you can be reincarnated in a higher caste uh, and eventually work your way, you know, escape the cycle of reincarnation. If you're bad, well, you are reincarnated as a lower caste or maybe you come back as a worm or something like that. That's Eastern religion, reincarnation. You know, the Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. The Bible teaches resurrection. Amen. And you know something? Resurrection is also different than resuscitation. You know, you read a lot of uh, miracles in the Gospels, and those mo the most amazing miracles are those in which Jesus raises the dead to life again. Like uh, Lazarus in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead but you know, more so than resurrection, that's really resuscitation because Lazarus is raised from the dead, but Lazarus has to die again. And I've often wondered if that's why Jesus was weeping there at the tomb of Lazarus. I believe he was weeping because he saw the sorrow that Lazarus' death had brought about in the lives of those that Jesus loved, but think about it. Lazarus had died, Lazarus was in the presence of God, and Lazarus is brought back only to have to die again. <laughs> but folks, let me tell you something, resurrection is entirely different. Resurrection means that God has a plan as far as the believer's body is concerned. And so salvation does not only apply to the soul, 
But listen, God has a redemptive plan for the human body, and that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us the theology of this, and the key verse in this chapter could very well be verse 54, which says, death is swallowed up in victory. The tomb, the grave, death did not defeat the Lord Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ overcame death and is the victorious son of God. And folks, if you were in Jesus Christ, the best news you will ever hear is that because he is victorious, you too are victorious. And you and I share in his victory. And so really what I want to do um, this morning, I want to look at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And honestly, over the next three or four weeks, I'm actually going to camp out here And uh, we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus this morning. And then in the coming weeks, I want to deal with the resurrection of the believer. Uh, What that means, uh, what that involves, what the resurrection body will be like. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse number 1. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning as we read the scripture together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse number 1. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, Now I would remind you, brethren, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, I want to stop reading there, but in these verses, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that our gospel is a resurrection gospel, and so I want to speak from that subject this morning, the resurrection gospel. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the wonderful truth, Lord, of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Lord, for what that means, uh, Lord, for those who are in Jesus Christ, truly, there is no grave that's going to keep our body down. And we thank you for that. Lord, may you bless the reading of your word in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The truth that Jesus Christ overcame the grave is what gives confidence to our lives as believers. And so for this reason, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. In fact, it's what holds Christianity together. Without 
the message of the resurrection, you would have no gospel. The good news would not be good news, it would simply be news. Uh, if the, the resurrection were not true, there would be no life beyond the grave, there would be no hope beyond the grave. And if Jesus were not raised, Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 that we would still be in our sins. And in fact, he teases this out later in the chapter, but he says that all of us who believe uh, would be of all people the most to be pitied. And the idea is if the resurrection of Jesus Christ were not true, then this assembly this morning would be a waste of time and energy. It'd be a waste of effort to put on Easter services. Uh, there really would be no good news that we could announce to the world were the resurrection of Jesus Christ not true. And so if Jesus is not raised, then ultimately there is no good news. However, if Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the grave, then the situation is totally different. If he did rise, nothing is more pressing than the proclamation of his message. If he did rise, nothing is more important than the local church. If he did rise, then the mission of taking this gospel to the ends of the earth demands that we sacrifice and leverage our resources for the sake of that mission. If he did rise, then that means there is hope for every man, every woman, and every child. And folks, that's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul makes here in this chapter. And so for just a few minutes, I want you to notice with me how this gospel is a resurrection gospel. Now, I want to make several considerations. Uh, first of all, notice with me how this gospel is the focus of apostolic preaching. Uh, when the apostles uh, preached the gospel, when they were commissioned and sent into the world with the news of the gospel, they weren't simply sent into the world with the message that Jesus died, period. No, apostolic preaching demanded that they preach the full message. Christ did, in fact, die on the cross for sin, but he was buried, but on the third day, he rose again from the grave. And so the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the apostolic gospel. And so again, were the resurrection not a part of that, then ultimately Jesus and his death on the cross would have been uh, in vain. It would have been to no effect. So here in verse one, Paul puts these Corinthian believers in remembrance of that message that he had preached to them when he was there in the city of Corinth. In no uncertain terms, he reminds them that it was this gospel, literally good news, the news of Christ's death for sin, his burial, and the fact that he rose again on uh, the third day. And so this is the point that Paul makes way back in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Uh, he begins this letter by basically telling these believers that when he was there in their midst, when he was ministering, when he was preaching, he didn't come declaring the testimony of God with lofty speech or in human wisdom. The idea was, Paul says, I wasn't there to impress you with my words, with my eloquence, with my oratorical ability. He said, I simply showed up preaching this message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, I determined to not know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified and the power of this gospel message. And Paul well recognized that the gospel alone had the power to save those who believe. 
Now, you study 1 Corinthians, and you'll find out that Paul had to deal with a lot of stuff in his letter to the Corinthian church. In fact, the church at Corinth was the church that gave Paul the biggest fit. Uh, and part of that was because there was such a, uh, uh, an immoral culture that was characteristic of Corinth in Paul's day that it was, it was one thing getting the church uh, saved uh, out of Corinth, but it was another thing getting Corinth out of the church, if that makes sense. Uh, same thing's true in our culture today. God saves men and women out of the world, but through the process of sanctification, he's ironing out all the wrinkles in his church. And sometimes someone says, well, I'm not going to church because the church is not perfect. Well, what you don't realize is that the church is in a process of being perfected, and it is the power of this gospel, and it's the preaching of his word, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit whereby God is ironing out the wrinkles in his church. And one of these days, the church is going to be presented to her Lord spotless without defect whatsoever. So you recognize the church is not perfect. Here's what I say to you. Come join the rest of us because you ain't perfect either. So, so here's the thing. One of the issues that Paul has to deal with in Corinth uh, was that there, was, um, there were some who had been uh, buying into the spirit of the age, the Greek philosophy of the day, which denied the truth of bodily resurrection. In fact, you get down to verse number 12, and you see where Paul begins uh, teaching on the, the implications of Jesus' resurrection. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, Greek philosophy at this particular point in time denied the truth of bodily resurrection. Now, Acts chapter 18 tells us the background of Paul's ministry in Corinth. But you go back one chapter earlier in chapter 17, Paul was in Athens before he was in Corinth. Corinth was only 45 miles uh, to the west of the city of Athens. And so while Paul was in Athens, he preached and his message was met with skepticism. He preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when the men of Athens heard the resurrection of the dead, Acts 17.32 says that some mocked. The idea is they scoffed, they laughed, they made fun of the message. Because in those days, Greek philosophy believed that the body was material, temporary, and ultimately it was a distraction from one's true being, which was the soul. And so this idea of Greek philosophical dualism uh, understood that ultimately the soul was, was more valuable than the body. The body was merely a prison for the soul. And so what happened to the body really didn't ultimately matter. What happened to the soul was more important. Now we know that the Bible teaches that the physical body was part of God's original good creation and is essential part of humanity. Now we know that sin has taken its toll out on the body. The body is now subject to corruption and sin and death in a fallen state of existence. But God's plan is not to annihilate the body and free our souls in sort of this disembodied eternal existence. Now folks, listen, the gospel says that God has a plan for the body. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his bodily resurrection is proof positive that God has a plan for the physical part of our humanity. 
And so that's the message. Paul's laughed out of Athens. He comes to Corinth. He plants the church. There's an evangelistic harvest there, and you can read all about it in Acts chapter 18. Paul stays there for about a year and a half, along with Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, There's a tremendous ministry there in the city of Corinth. But again, because Corinth wasn't too very far from Athens, that same Greek philosophical thought was also characteristic of the Corinthians. Corinth was more of a immoral city. If Athens was an intellectual city, Corinth was known for its immorality. It was a city that valued pleasure above learning. And so Corinth kind of left the thinking to her Athenian neighbors And the people of Corinth adopted without question their attitudes and philosophies as far as the resurrection of the body was concerned. Now listen to this. There was this eagerness to appear wise in the eyes of the world that had become a constant snare for the church in Corinth. There were some within the church who were tempted to succumb to the pressure of this philosophical respectability by denying the truth of bodily resurrection. The gospel message that was being preached by the Corinthian church to the people in Corinth was met, obviously, with skepticism. It made them stand out, and the temptation was for them to just adopt the spirit of the age so they wouldn't really stand out. (laughs) Now, does that sound familiar to you? Because it ought to. Because the same battle is ongoing even today as far as the church in the midst of an unbelieving culture. This idea of bodily resurrection. You've got secular humanism that's so true of the day in which we live, the the, the philosophical approach to life in, in the West now is basically this approach. This life is all that there is. When you die, that's it. So, so spend your life having fun, spend your life making money, because when you die, that's it, that's all she wrote, game over. But that is not what the Word of God says. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And so, yes, God has a plan for the human body. In fact, we just finished a study through the book of Daniel, and we saw resurrection emphasized uh, in in the second verse in uh, Daniel chapter 12, how at the end of the age there's going to be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. God has a plan for the human body. And so this is the point then that Paul is making here. He's reminding the Corinthians of this ever-important truth. What had been the result of the gospel in their lives? They had received it, they had believed it, and verse number two, you look at what verse two says, by which you were being saved. It's the truth of this gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves, believing the gospel. If indeed you hold fast to the word that I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. That word vain there translates a word that means no yield without success. It's this idea that every uh, outward response to the gospel, not every outward response to the gospel is legitimate. You know, Jesus told a parable, the parable of the sower, to illustrate this point. He said that a sower went out to sow his seed, and, and as he sowed, some of the seed fell among the path and was trodden down. 
Some of the seed fell upon shallow ground. There wasn't any depth of soil. So the seed really couldn't take root. Some of the seed was scattered and sown among thorns and the thorns sprang up with the seed and choked it to keep it from producing fruit. But some of the seed fell on good ground. And the seed that fell on good ground took root, grew up, and produced fruit. And the whole point of that parable is not every outward response to the gospel is a legitimate response. And that's what the Apostle Paul is mentioning here. He's saying, listen, I know that when I was there among you for a year and a half, laboring, preaching the gospel, uh, man, there was an evangelistic harvest there in Corinth. Many of you believed the gospel. The church was born. You were saved. And so those who were coming along and denying the fact of the resurrection, in their denial of the resurrection, Paul is saying they're proving that their faith is really illegitimate. Because no true, genuine, converted, born-again believer would deny this truth of the resurrection. So this resurrection gospel, it's the focus of apostolic preaching. Now, there's a second thing that I want you to see, and it's this. Notice how it also involves the fulfillment of divine promise. The resurrection ultimately is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul sort of summarizes there in verse three, his ministry. Uh, He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That is, what I received by direct revelation from the risen Lord himself, that's what I declared to you. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried Why is that important? Well, because listen, he he, he didn't merely swoon on the cross. He didn't faint on the cross. He didn't fake his own death on the cross. No, he died and he was buried in a tomb. And yet he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so Paul is pointing out here how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the focal point of the entire Old Testament scriptures. Our salvation is contingent upon our faith in this fundamental truth that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now again, you see this emphasized in Peter's message on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, Jesus Christ was a man attested to you by God with many works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You killed by lawless hands, but God has raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it wasn't possible that he be held by it. And then Peter references David in Psalm 16 and shows how this was ultimately the plan of God and how the prophetic text of the Old Testament ultimately pointed to the truth of Christ's resurrection. Uh, The Apostle Paul preaches the very same thing in Acts chapter 13. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, has a conversation with two of the disciples. And the Bible says that he explains to them from the law and the prophets everything in the scriptures concerning himself. If you want to know what the Old Testament is all about, it points you to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
You add to that the fact that Jesus himself made several statements throughout the Gospels that he would die and be raised to life again on the third day. If the resurrection didn't happen, then listen, Jesus was a liar. He was an imposter. And we know that that's not the truth. We know that he did rise. Next time you read through your Old Testament, you ought to just pay close attention to the emphasis that you often find that's placed upon the importance of the third day. Our God is the God of the third day. Even in the first chapter of Genesis, it's on the third day of creation that the world that God creates springs to life. Plants yielding seeds spring to life on the third day of creation. That is, God creates plants, and those plants have seed, bearing seed. And it's all a picture. What about Abraham? He's told to offer up his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Genesis chapter 22, verse number four says that it was on the third day that they arrived. Exodus 19, it was on the third day that God descended upon the top of Mount Sinai and delivered the law in the sight of all of the people. Even the feast of Israel, Leviticus chapter 23, the feast of first fruits was offered on the third day after the Passover. What was the, first, what was the feast of first fruits? Well, basically, it was symbolic as, as the first fruits of the season were to come in, uh, they were to be brought to the priest, and the priest was to wave that before the Lord, and it was basically trusting God for the future harvest that would come. Christ died for our sin on Passover. But on the third day, first fruits, he rose from the grave. Paul's going to make this point in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ has become the first fruits of them which are asleep. That is, all of those who are in Jesus Christ, who've placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, they too are going to experience a resurrection just like his. What about King Hezekiah, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 5? He had a terminal illness. He asked God to heal him. God gave him 15 extra years, but he was healed on the third day. Here you have a king with a terminal illness who is healed on the third day. And folks, it's all just a picture that points to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, you see shadow, you see prophecy, you see promises, and it all is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that our God is a promise-keeping God? David says prophetically in Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known unto me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David died. Who is David writing about? He's writing about his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, says this of the suffering servant, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, the one upon whose back, uh, by whose stripes we are healed. Verse 10 of that passage, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. In other words, his suffering will not be in vain. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Prophet Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may ever live before him. So the idea is it shouldn't have taken these disciples by surprise when the tomb was empty on resurrection morning because all of the law and the prophets pointed to this pivotal moment. So this resurrection gospel, it's it's the focus of apostolic preaching. It's the fulfillment of divine promise from the Old Testament. But notice the third thing. Notice how it involves the fact of eyewitness testimony. I mean, we're not talking about a made-up superstitious tale here, folks. We're talking about eyewitness testimony. And in verses 5 through 8, notice how the Apostle Paul is very specific as far as that eyewitness testimony is concerned. He died according to sins. He was buried. He, He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he began appearing. He appeared first to Cephas. That's the Aramaic word for Peter. He appeared to Peter and then to the 12. So those that had spent three and a half years with him, where were they uh, when he was crucified? They were in hiding, all but the, the apostle John. Where were they on Easter Sunday morning? They were hiding in an upper room, scared to death that the same thing that had happened to Jesus would soon happen to them, that the religious establishment, the chief priest and the leaders of the people would be coming after them to crucify them. They're in hiding. But something happens on Easter Sunday morning when the women show up and the women were the ones who were there at the tomb first and they see that the stone had been rolled and that the tomb was empty and the body was not there. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and calls her by name according to what the Gospel of John writes. And she can't wait to tell Peter and the rest of the disciples the news. And eventually they too come to the tomb. They run. They see the tomb just exactly the way that it had been described by the women. And at this point they're still unbelieving. They're scratching their heads wondering what happened. But listen, it wasn't until Jesus himself appeared in bodily resurrected form that they too began to believe. So he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the 12. Verse six, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most likely, perhaps at his ascension. And Paul says, many of whom, they're still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So at the time of his writing here to the church at Corinth, You could have traveled to Jerusalem and have interviewed these witnesses and they would have told you what they saw. We saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. We saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. We saw Jesus alive after he had been crucified, after he had been buried. We know that he's been raised because we saw him. And the disciples would say, we we broke bread with him on the beach. We spent time with him. Thomas, the doubting Thomas, doubting man that he was, would come up to you and say, yeah, I wasn't believing it either until he showed up. And I made this statement that unless I put my finger in the palms of his hands, in those nail prints, I would not believe. But then Thomas, he, listen, something happened. He had a change of tune real quick. 
You know what church history says happened to Thomas? Church history says that Thomas took the gospel to parts of India and that Thomas was martyred for his faith. Literally, he was skinned alive. Now, you tell me what happened in Thomas's life where a man who was cowering in fear, refusing to believe, how can he be so radically transformed that suddenly uh, he takes the gospel to the ends of the earth and dies? It's because he had an encounter with this risen Jesus. It's because the spirit of the living God had come to take up residence in Thomas. His life had been changed. And on and on and on it goes. So all of these witnesses, and then ultimately the apostle Paul points the Corinthian believers to his own himself. Verse eight, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, the word there is, is this idea of premature birth. One prematurely born, he also appeared to me. So you've got appearance after appearance, eyewitness testimony, one right after the other. Kenneth Lauderet, historian, says this. He says, it was the conviction of the resurrection of Jesus that lifted his followers out of the despair into which his death had cast them and which led to the perpetuation of the movement that Jesus started. But for their profound belief that the crucified had risen from the dead and that they had seen him and talked with him, the death of Jesus and even Jesus himself would probably have been all but forgotten. So here you've got it. You've got the resurrection. Listen to me. It is the focus of apostolic preaching. The resurrection is the fulfillment of divine promise. The resurrection involves the fact of eyewitness testimony. And then one final thing that I want you to consider is how the resurrection of Jesus Christ ultimately produces the fruit of a changed life. And again, look at what the apostle Paul says about himself. Verse nine, he says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. That's something that Paul never got over. He never forgot from where he came. He never forgot how much of a sinner he was before Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus. Who was he prior to his conversion? He was Saul of Tarsus, a religious man, but not a truly righteous man. Saul of Tarsus was someone who was determined to stamp out this new movement to put to death these that were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, who was the risen Messiah. It was Saul who spearheaded a, a wave of persecution against the church, the fledgling church, unlike that church had ever experienced. So he goes from being the leading antagonist when it came to Christianity to being its leading champion and advocate. Now you tell me what made the difference in his life. He certainly didn't have anything to gain monetarily from it. Social credibility, he didn't have any of it. He had that before he came to faith in Jesus Christ as far as his relationship to the Jews were concerned. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. <laughs> 
But you see, the thing is, whenever Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he was brought into the dirt, made painfully aware of his own need for a Savior and how Jesus Christ was indeed the risen Son of God. And he confessed his sin and he placed his faith and his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, his life was changed. And then he becomes a commissioned apostle. A committed antagonist then becomes a commissioned apostle. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he said, listen, what ultimately can be, there's no explanation for it in my life aside from the resurrected Jesus. Now folks, let me just bring all of this to a close and just make some personal application here. Your life, religion will not cut it when it comes to judgment day. When it comes to you standing before Almighty God, the fact that you attended services and were a religious person, it means ultimately nothing as far as personal salvation is concerned. What matters on this Easter Sunday is whether or not you have had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, whereby you know that you've been convicted of your sin You understand the cross of Jesus Christ and the need for the cross and that Christ died for your sin upon the cross and so satisfied the wrath of a holy God but that you believe personally that Jesus Christ got up from the grave on resurrection morning and your faith and your trust is in him as your risen Savior. Listen to me. Is that you? Has your life been changed by this gospel, this resurrection gospel? And if so, if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, then you know that this is the most wonderful thing. Your life is secure. Your sins have been forgiven. If you're in Jesus Christ, you know that your salvation is steadfast. You're being kept by the enduring power of the living Christ. If Jesus were dead, you would not be, what, what kind of a dead savior, a dead savior can't save anybody. But the dying Savior who died on the cross is now the living Savior who emerged from the tomb on Easter. And so that means there's no need for me and you to fear death. And oh, there's so much fear of death these days. Sickness. The media only exacerbates that. The sky is always falling depending on who you listen to. And the reason for that is because, listen, the world around us is in unbelief and doesn't understand the hope that Easter provides. But it ought to be different in the people of God. It ought to be different with the church that's been to the tomb and has seen that the tomb is empty. There ought to be some type of victorious hope that's characteristic of those who name the name of Jesus and call upon the name of Jesus. Victorious hope. Jesus lives, and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bond of death to sever. And he shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives and reigns supreme and his kingdom still remaining. I shall also be with him ever living, ever reigning. God has promised, be it must, 
Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives and by his grace, victory or my passions giving. I will cleanse my heart and ways ever to his glory living. Me he raises from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives, I know full well, naught from him my heart can sever. Life, nor death, nor powers of hell, joy, nor grief, henceforth forever. None of all his saints is lost. Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives, and death is now but my entrance into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. Thou shalt find thy hopes were just, for Jesus is the Christian's trust. Is he your trust this morning? I pray that he is. Let's stand. Let's pray together this morning. Oh, aren't you grateful for this unshakable hope? The victory that is yours through Jesus Christ Friend, listen, if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, it's not by accident that you're here. Maybe someone invited you to come this morning. Maybe you're watching online. Can I just urge you, turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in this risen Jesus. He's in the life-changing business. And I am so glad that the world as we know it and all of its brokenness, man, if we didn't have this gospel, there really wouldn't be any good news. If this life and the way that things are now was all that there was, man, what hope would there be? But the tomb is empty, and that tells me that my God is making all things new. And one of these days, he's going to come again. Ain't no grave going to hold my body down. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. And Lord, the whole world is is in a corner this morning as this message of the empty tomb is declared. Oh God, how we live in a world that desperately needs hope, forgiveness of sin. But Lord, hope is found in the living Jesus. Sinners can be saved and they can be set free from their sin by placing their faith and trust in the one who died and rose again. May it be so, Lord, here and around the world for Jesus' sake. Amen.